I started learning that I did have power, even though I had felt for most of my life like I had none. Welcome to Your Next Chapter, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the game changers and experts to tackle the next chapter of your life. Whether you want to start a business, pivot in your career, or get in the best shape of your life, I provide the guests to draw tactics, insight, and inspiration from to conquer your next chapter. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Today's guest is Kelly Davis. Before I get into my podcast with Kelly, there's something that I would like to let you know. Starting tomorrow, aka every single Wednesday now, I'm going to be putting out a short four or five minute podcast talking about a lesson, a mindset, something that's had a big impact on my life, something that's allowed me to transform and grow. And my intention of sharing it with you is that you will take this lesson and maybe it'll have an impact on your life as well. If it's helped me grow and transform, I'm hoping that it'll have an impact on your life. And so I thought it'd be important to start sharing these lessons as I don't want to be selfish with them. If they've helped me move forward, then I feel they can help other people move forward as well. And so starting with the one tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about Preston Smiles and celebrating your emotions versus punishing them. A lesson that had a profound impact on my life, and I'm going to be diving into that. Now, if you are here to listen to Kelly Davis and hear about her She is a phenomenal person. When I came across her, she talked to me about her journey in mental health and the challenges she had growing up with her own mental health. She recently spoke at the White House on a panel and is an advocate for mental health. She's also a yoga instructor in her spare time. And I knew I had to have Kelly on the podcast when I heard her story. I was really touched by it. And I knew there would be other people that are on a very similar journey or have had pain points with mental health and could benefit from hearing her story as she's really gone to tackle it and really deal with it in her own way and manner. And so I knew it could have an impact on other people who are going through a similar journey. So without further ado, I'm going to let Kelly Davis, just take it away. On the line with me, I have Kelly from Washington. Kelly, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with me today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get right into it. I always like by starting my podcast by asking all my guests, if your life was a book title, what would be the name for your book? So the name I think that I would go with for my book would be You Go Too Far, Kelly. Um, And the reason being is that I was a lot, I got into a lot of trouble growing up, uh, and, and during college. Um, and that was the thing that my mom would say over and over and over again to me because I've kind of always been, uh, one to push the limits. Uh, and it was kind of a matter of learning which limits I should try to change to push and which ones could be helpful. So when, that's, you, when you say go too far, in what areas would you say go too far? Well, growing up was probably more getting in trouble, um, but now it's become more what I demand of myself in terms of my work and how I live my life and telling my story in the way that I tell my story, which for, you know, some some people would be, for my mom, <laughs> is a lot. 
For the people that don't know your story, talk a bit about what chapter you're in right now and what you do in your day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, so I currently work in federal mental health policy and programs here in Washington, D.C., uh, in the national office of a nonprofit specifically dedicated to mental health. Um, I also teach group fitness classes. I just finished up my yoga teacher training program, so I'm going to start teaching yoga soon. Um, so mostly fitness-related stuff, reading a lot of philosophy, self-help, uh, personal development books, and the policy work is most of my time. Nice. You did a little bit of public speaking recently in the White House. Talk a bit about that experience. How was that? I did. It was it was a very good time. <laughs> um, I spoke on a storyteller's panel um, at an event specifically related to mental health. So I used my time to, speak, to really harp on this idea of recovery, uh, which recovery and mental health, which I don't know where I have a feeling is not discussed as much as I think it should be, because I think what a lot of people feel, what I felt, was that my mental health conditions, concerns, kind of were going to set me up for a life where I couldn't do things that I wanted to do. Um, so anytime I get the opportunity to speak, I really like to talk about how recovery is totally a thing for people, and it's a process of finding what works for you. Um, but speaking at the, it was really cool, um, a bit scary, but it was I I was glad to have the opportunity. I can only imagine it'd be quite intimidating <laughs> to uh, speak at the White House. <laughs> yeah. Did you meet the president? No, I would love to, but no, I didn't. <laughs> it was um, a lot of awesome people, a lot of uh, administrators, people who work in programs um, at different levels, and then a lot of people from the nonprofit world. Nice. Let's get into your story a little bit and what allowed you to speak on a panel in the White House, the things that happened to you growing up and impacted you to now have this opportunity to be able to speak, you know, at the White House in different places about your story. Talk a bit about your earlier chapters and wherever you feel is appropriate to start off. Yeah. Um, so when I tell my story, I usually start off, for me, it was very young. Um, I think there's this idea that when you turn into your late teens and early 20s, mental health problems suddenly appear. Um, and for most people, that's not actually how it works. I knew probably in first grade, I felt like something was, I felt like something was wrong with me. Um, I felt like my feelings were too big for my body and I felt different from other people. And I really could not articulate, uh, obviously because you don't really possess the self-awareness or the vocabulary at that age. Um, so I think my eating disorder, um, and my struggles with my mood really started probably as early as maybe first or second grade. Um, and then it was kind of coupled with, you know, my eating disorder became worse. Um, it was a lot of bullying, uh, sexual abuse, um, sexual assaults in high school. I abused substances pretty heavily, got into a lot of really toxic relationships. Um, so it, it was a really... I have, there were good things, obviously good things that happened, but it was a lot of dark times and a lot of struggle and a lot of, you know, 
getting deep in the hole and climbing out of the hole. I was I was hospitalized um, in a psychiatric ward in high school. A few suicide attempts. Um, was going to drop out of college. So it was kind of really up until halfway through my college career was a, just a lot of chaos um, and a lot of kind of struggle in the cycle and it would get a little better and then it would get really bad and then it would get a little better and then it would get really bad again. Um, and I, I internalized from what other people told me, what doctors told me, what I read and saw in the media that that was my whole life and that was the only way I would be able to live um, my life. When I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, it was really scary for me uh, because of my ideas about what bipolar disorder meant um, about me as a person, but also for the rest of my life. And it wasn't until I really did hit a really low point in my sophomore year of college where I was in a really bad relationship. I lost, you know, most of my relationships outside of that. Um, was really struggling with substances. Was not doing it really much related to my schoolwork, um, kept losing my financial aid and having to reapply that I was like, okay, well, if, if I, this is it, this is my last chance. And if I don't do something now and I have to drop out of school and I have, you know, two years of debt from a private college and this is going to be the rest of my life. Uh, so it took several, several, uh, rock bottoms um, for me to finally be like, you know, I need to do something different or else I'm not going to get the chance to do something different. And what was that point of transformation for you when you said, I need to do something different after all that? And I do want to get into bits and pieces of that some more, but what was kind of like, you know, you obviously had a very tough upbringing. What flipped the switch for you? I, the things that really changed me, uh, I guess kind of through, through the time I was struggling, I had doctors, uh, and I had some professors actually who really believed in me, um, and, you know, told me I had value and that I was smart and that I could do things. And then I discovered yoga, which is my jam now, um. I discovered yoga and that a lot of, and I, I touched on before, and, I, you know, we spoke before, um, issues from sexual trauma um, growing up and in high school, really, I really rejected my body um, and the issues with the eating disorder. A lot of it was just like a rejection. I couldn't stand being in my own body. And yoga, I got this thing where it was like, well, I can explore my relationship with my body in a way that's safe. Um, so yoga has been, my start in yoga was much more physical, and then I kind of got more into the spiritual focus. Um, but yoga changed my life. I got super into Tony Robbins, uh, who my dad was a huge fan of growing up. And I remember he, he, he would try to get me to listen to the tapes and I would be like, this guy is so boring. I don't want to be doing this. And I, now I've gone to one of his events. I, I worked, I volunteered to work at one of his events, um, this previous year. And my parents also forced me to come home from school. So I spent that summer 
doing yoga. Um, I stopped drinking. Uh, I stopped dating, really. Um, I kind of stopped doing most of the things I was doing and really only focused on exercise. I worked with kids all summer, um, went to a lot of therapy, and just kind of focused on myself for those three months and learned that, you know, through the small actions I could take every day, I did have the power to make things happen. And it, and it's taken, it's been a few years since then, since, you know, things have really started happening, but um, it was kind of, I learned, I started learning that I did have power, even though I had felt for most of my life like I had none. A little earlier, you talked about how there were some teachers that really believed in you, people mm -hmm. that, you know, had more faith, we could say, in you than you had in yourself. Is there one teacher or person that really stands out to you? I can, I can name a few. Um, I'm curious to know what it was about them that really, like, helped you through tough times. Yeah. I, I don't know how, if they even really know. I mean, I've definitely reached out, but, um, I don't know if they really know how, how impactful they were. Uh, the fall of my, of my sophomore year when things were really, really horrible. Um, I had a professor in a class and I went in and I was like, oh my gosh, I, this guy is so sassy and this is so annoying and this is a mandatory class I have to take and I don't want to be here. Um, and then he, he gave our first papers back and he was like, you know, the person who got the highest grade is the person who I didn't think was going to show up after the first class. And I was like, huh. <laughs> and that kind of shifted the dynamic in our relationship. And I wound up having to go and talk to him because, you know, I was having weeks where I couldn't get out of bed. I was so depressed. Uh, and the synth, like the empathy that he showed me and the belief that I was intelligent. And, you know, when I was getting this constant message that I really wasn't by the person I was with, that I wasn't worth anything, that I was stupid, that I was all of these awful things to have this one person who I really respected be like, you know, it's okay. And you're worth something was really a transformative for me. Yeah, it's amazing how teachers can have such a huge impact on our lives. I know my philosophy and our teacher, like, and they don't really know, like, I've reached out to them, but I don't think they really recognize how much of an impact they've had on my life and how much they've influenced me. I think it's people like that that we should really make an effort. I think I want to reach out to them, like, hey, just so you know, write them a very touching note, because it's so, like, so many people along our lives and our journey touch us, and we don't let them know that, and it's just sad almost. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, I think, vulnerability in sharing something like that with somebody. It's very scary. Um, when I reached out to him, I was so, I was like, oh, he's going to think I'm so weird. <laughs> but he did appreciate me reaching out to him. And I think that, you know, the world could stand to have more people do that, for sure. I feel they would appreciate it, for sure. I do want to ask, when we talked, you said you knew as young as seven that, you know, things weren't quite right. Mm -hmm. What was the first sense for you that you knew something wasn't quite right with you mentally? Um, I have a lot of different kind of small memories, but it was really, I had this 
these big feelings um, and a lot of like self-directed anger and loathing, which is a pretty complicated uh, emotion for somebody at that age. Totally. Uh, yeah, because I just remember, you know, intent like intentionally not eating and even self-harming, like, you know, maybe age seven. I had a, a friend at the time, uh, friend at the time who I think her parents were going through a divorce. Um, so at this time where I was kind of coping with trying to figure out why I didn't understand the people around me and didn't understand how I fit in in relation to them. Um, she was, you know, she told me to kill myself. Like, uh, you know, and I, you're, when you're like nine years old, you're like, oh, well, people don't just, and I mean, I still don't understand why anyone would ever just say that. But I didn't really know what that was. Um, so if somebody that you think is your friend says that to you, you're like, wow, I must be bad. Um, so I think that it just kind of served to reinforce and it, it kind of snowballed um, from the beginning. I think I think that my, you know, I had a lot of instances of teachers reaching out to my parents and teachers being like, you know, what's going on? Um, but I think that people now, then, even though it wasn't that long ago, people then really didn't talk about this stuff. Or, you know, the, the dialogue wasn't the same as it is now, versus now, hopefully, you know, there would be more involvement from the school who sees you all the time and is able to say, you know, why does she draw pictures of people crying like she is a child? That's kind of strange. Let's talk about it. Versus then, it was like, what's wrong, what's wrong with you? Knock it off. Um, <laughs> that's part of why I do what I do. Uh, in terms of policy um, is because I really, I think that if there had been, and I, and I love my parents and, and they did everything that they knew to do. Um, but I think that if I had had access to some different kinds of stuff earlier, I probably wouldn't have had as hard of a time as I did. Is that why you do what you do? You feel that everyone that's in a similar situation like you that need to have access to the right support networks and yeah. you're trying to put in a place of, you know, policies and protocol that almost like no child gets left behind. I think I, yeah, definitely not that policy, but yeah. Um, <laughs> for me, part of what was so painful uh, was not only struggling, but never feeling like there was a place for me to exist like I was always on the outside and couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and I think that made it a lot harder like if there if I had just been able to say or if there had been a bigger focus on teaching me or you know teaching me using me as an example like emotional regulation um how to tolerate distress uh, how to be more mindful of what I'm experiencing in my body. Like all of these things are massively important. And, you know, I think people don't always think of that when they think of kids. Well, you're absolutely right, because when we have nowhere to express how we feel, a lot of people get lost. The reference that comes to my mind, I had my buddy Rob Dyer on this podcast, and he built it charity called Skate for Cancer. And basically with Skate for Cancer is it's people that are going through cancer or parents are going through it. And it's focused a lot around youth 
it's just a support network for them because one thing he realized when he'd lost several cancers, there was no one to talk to about it. So he started going to concerts and selling merchandise for Skate for Cancer, and all these kids came to him during the shows be like, hey, my mom has cancer, my dad has cancer, my uncle, my sister, some kids themselves, and it's like, and so there's no one to talk to about these situations, and kids can feel so alone. And so he created this organization because he just wanted to have more of a support network for everyone, especially the youth, to talk about these things. Because when we have no one to turn to, we feel isolated, and that's when we're like, oh, there's something wrong with me, and that's when you start really judging yourself. Yeah, and especially when when we talk about suicide prevention and the the role of isolation and social connectedness, like. You know, there are people talk about research that being socially isolated is worse for you than smoking um, for your long-term health. Uh, and I think that, that that's a way to get at suicide prevention. It's not the only thing, obviously. But for me, the t- I, I attempted um, suicide three times, and it was all... They, during those times, it was really like I felt like there was no one who would care. And I was not, you know, like, and after, after my most serious attempt where I was hospitalized in high school, I haven't, I haven't attempted since then because I saw the hurt that it did to the people around me that I didn't really think it would. Um, and having those people, you know, even when it's awful and, you know, when I feel like, you know, uh, when I felt like, you know, nothing's going to get better, um, to have those ties is really important. Talk a bit, and as much as you feel comfortable, I don't want you to go anywhere you don't want to, but you just had three suicide attempts. You know, yeah. give some context to at what time in your life those happened and mm-hmm. what triggered you to go that far. Yeah, um, my first was when I was uh, in fifth grade. Then in seventh grade, um, and then when I was a junior in high school. Um, I think in fifth grade, it was before I had, so fifth grade is when I, when I had my first kind of contact with the mental health system. Um, my first real contact with the mental health system, because I think that then it was really more, I don't have the words and I don't want to feel this way anymore. And I don't know what to do with myself and I don't know what to do with my feelings. Um, and then the same in seventh grade, it was like, you know, there was like definitely bullying and sexual trauma and the stuff that had happened. And I didn't know how to say it. And I didn't know how to regulate how I felt inside or how to even put my feelings in context. And I felt super re- I don't know if people actually know this because there have been people who are like, what do you mean? But I felt super isolated from everybody around me. Um, I felt like an alien. Like there was, there was nobody else around me who was like me and that must mean something's wrong with me and no one will ever understand. Um, and then I started group therapy, which is like one of my favorite things. And I think it's the coolest stuff ever. Um, after my second attempt, um, I wound up in more intensive therapy and group. Um, and then when I was in, uh, high school, it was this, it was a real attempt. Um, I just, I was just like, it's too much. I, I just didn't see a future and I didn't feel connected to anybody. And, um, I just, you know, I had been in lots of treatment. 
Um, and it was just like, I, I don't, I don't feel anything anymore. And that's what was the most dangerous thing for me. Like, that's my biggest, my biggest red flag, um, is when I, when you feel so low that you don't feel anything. Like, um, and that's, that's what happened then. And since then, you know, I really have learned to, and yoga has definitely helped with this to pay more attention to kind of like, okay, this is like a pink flag. This is like a salmon flag. This is like a real, real red flag. Like you need to like up the ante on everything you're doing right now because you're getting to a dangerous place for yourself. Um, so that, I mean, it was really though, like I, when I got back to school, um, I think it was like my birthday and everyone was like, where did I, it was like when swine flu was happening. So my mom had like posted on my Facebook wall, like, sorry, you have swine. Like when I, I was in the, you know, I was in the psych ward, like, and I was like, okay, well, I guess we lie about, um, this stuff. And I got back to school and it was my birthday and people had said a lot of really, really bad things about me, um, being out of school, like suddenly by surprise, I disappeared. And when I went back, we were at a retreat and I like took the microphone and like was like, you know, I'm really hurt by what everybody, what I've heard everybody said. And like, I said I was in treatment for my eating disorder, um, which I was uh, because I had to do like, you have, usually have to do like step down programs um, when you're inpatient. So I was an intensive outpatient for my eating disorder, but I was too ashamed to say that I tried to take my own life. Uh, and saying, talking about that, you know, felt safer for me. But, um, it was like, I didn't feel like I had a lot of friends who were struggling, but I really didn't feel like I could connect with anybody. But part of that was that I didn't want to be seen. Um, so when you're like, you know, in such need of connection with other people, but at the same time are really, really afraid to be vulnerable. It makes for a really not good combination because you can't have connection without that risk. Um, which I, I learned, uh, because, of, because most of my life was really like, you know, people are bad and people hurt me and I'm going to put all this armor up and I'm going to be bad girl and nobody's going to try to mess with me and I'm going to make you not like me. So you can't decide you don't like me. Um, and I was miserable. Like me, people still hurt my feelings too. And like, I was super miserable. And it wasn't until stepping, stepping into that vulnerable space and being like, yeah, like totally people aren't going to like me and sorry, you know. I don't jive with everybody, um, but I need to allow myself to be seen if I want to get the benefits of having a connection with another person. Um, and that was that was really scary, especially with the trauma, um, because I, for me and I, I know for a lot of people, it leaves you when you have all this rejection um, and abuse in your history, you feel, or, you know, a lot of people, especially me, I felt like dirty inside like something's wrong with me I can't let myself be seen because if I let myself be seen then people will see me and then they will reject me um and that's just so painful and I think so many people even without that degree of you know trauma is trauma pain is pain everybody's had rejection so it doesn't have to be you know the most extreme example but I think that so many people are walking around 
wanting to connect, but are so afraid to be vulnerable themselves. And then they're like, oh, something must be wrong with me. And it's like, no, people can feel that honesty. and People can feel when you're being genuine. You know, it's like subconscious you can feel it. And if you don't go, if you won't go to that place and you don't have, I mean, now my struggle is trying to figure out when to not go to that place. Um, so like the balance of having too much empathy. Um, but I think that if you don't go to that place, you, you it's, very challenging to to have any kind of real relationship. Well, I totally relate to that. When we chatted on the phone previous, because I told you how I recently came forward about being bisexual on a podcast, and a lot of the same things, isolation. And I'm like, if I talk to people about this, it's like, no one's going to like me. It's like, no one's going to like, all the friends that I have, they're going to be gone out the window. My family, friends, like, gone. And so you get to this point where you start hating on yourself and you can't live with yourself because you don't want to share something that's so much a part of who you are. And it's getting vulnerable. Like you said, it's about bringing the vulnerability together and authenticity and talking to someone. But it's scary as shit, right? And it's like you don't want to go there. And it's like you don't want to open up with that. And it took a lot of nerve and a really strong coach for me to really be able to put that podcast forward because if it wasn't for that support in my life, there's no way I would have done it. There's no way I would have told anybody about it. But since that moment, it's like I've had a calmness in my life. It's like all the anxiety and depression that's related to that has almost left just by simply talking to the world and people about it. Exactly. And I think that that's um, one of the things, one of the reasons why for people who are struggling group therapy or, you know, support groups or even individual, but I, I really like group. Um, is so transformative because you can say to somebody, you know, it's important to have relationships, but when you're in a place where you're like rock bottom, like I don't have anybody that I can tell this stuff to. I don't, you know, like I had this problem where I like, you know, there were lots of times where I didn't want to go to lunch in school because I was like, nobody's going to want to talk to me. Nobody's going to want to sit with me. So I'm like super isolated, feel rejected. And you say, well, just talk to your friends about it. And I'm like, well, shit, that's the problem. Like I don't have the people I can talk to about it. So I think that group, it provides, it's such an awesome experience because ev all of those guards and like there's definitely still guardedness, but like it's really a lot of it comes down and you're just real people. And if you're there, you usually are, you're usually struggling with something. Um, and it's, you can practice letting yourself be seen and having people who regard you, you know, cannot overstate the amazing feelings that come from people who talk to like the best version of you and who see past, you know, I was, you could have said a lot, people did, you could have said a lot of things about the way that I behaved and, you know, my partying and the stuff I did. That's the noise is what people usually see. But to have somebody like see you as a person and talk to that person in there as opposed to all the noise that's going on. And it can be success too. Because when you're successful, like some people only want, you know, like they only see that. But to have the people who are speaking to you and what you feel is your highest or your truest self, like, I don't know that there's that. For me, I also like just really value relationships. Um, but I don't know that there's anything else like it. And I think that group provides that 
for people who might not feel like there's anybody around for them. Was group therapy, because we've been talking a bit about it and I want to get some clarity on it, yeah. was it one of your biggest transformational moments? Um, I think it's something that helped me hang on for a long time. Um, so I was in group from seventh grade until I graduated high school. Um, and then I did some group work in college. Um, but I was kind of, I mean, I was able, my transformation, I really heavily relied on uh, my parents, like my dad especially, um, and the therapist I was working with. And I was really lucky to, to be able to have access to, to the degree and intensity of treatment I did because it's expensive and it's it's a commitment and I know that it's hard, you know, and that's part of why I work in policy is because it's really a big problem, um, how hard it is to get treatment unless you're at your worst point. Um, so group, I didn't do as much in college. Um, I did, I created a support group, but, uh, I got to a point where I was able to make group outside of group, um, by sharing my stuff, uh, and connecting with people that way. Um, I think the, the benefit, the Tony Robbins stuff, um, really empowered me to start talking out loud and about my story. And the more I talked about it, the more people I was able to find who connected with it. And I was, and I was also better able to connect with people I already knew who, you know, I had kind of blocked out because it was like, you get to know me up until this point And then nope, nobody comes in. Um, but I, so I didn't do group as much in college, but group, group, I just, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, the only reason I didn't is because, um, I didn't like the ones that were available in my, that I found around me. But, um, yeah, I just always, I think, especially for middle school and high school, like having a group of people who were my age, who got what I was going through. Who, there was no power dynamic. There was no doctor. There was no therapist. It was just us, and we were struggling, and we talked about it. And we didn't always get along, but we supported each other. Um, and I think that, especially if you don't feel like you have have that available to you, that it's really good. And they, I mean, there's lots of adult support groups. There's support groups related to, you know, not just mental health disorders. Um, you mentioned your friend who uh, did the yeah, and you know, there's all different support groups, and the internet for all of the ways that it's empowered people to do bad, bad things. Um, I think it also there's a lot of communities online too that you can find. Obviously, I I feel that in person there's a much it's a it's a much different form of contact. Um, but even the online support communities, I think just knowing that there's other people. Math has never been my thing, but I can remember as a kid, and like I still say this to myself sometimes, is like, oh, like, all right, there's like seven billion people, right? And there's one of me. Statistically, there's got to be at least like a couple other humans who feel like they don't belong. So I'm gonna wait it out for today, and I'm gonna find the other ones who are like me who don't feel like they belong. And I think that now that I've gotten to the point where I can say it out loud, 
I'm really starting to, there's, there's a, a lot of people don't feel like they belong. Um, and they're just waiting for somebody else to be like, you know, what's the deal? Like, why do we do these things? Why are we mean to each other? Why do we play these games? Like, uh, I'm not about it. Um, and I think that, that more and more people are doing that too, which is exciting. I totally agree with you. There's more and more people saying, hey, you know, I'm a weirdo. And it's funny when you put that out there, you find other people that are weird just like you. And then you don't <laughs> feel as alone and alienated anymore is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. I do want to clarify, and just for my own sake and the audiences, when you say group, you just mean a group of people sitting down and openly sharing about what they're going through. Yeah, and there's there's definitely more structured groups. Um, like when I was in um, like my rehab for eating, um, and I was in a more intensive program, there were like parameters. Uh, there were more rules versus like if you just find somebody who runs group therapy versus you know the difference between. But it's all the same, really. Um, some are more structured than others, but. You know, it's, it's, I think we're more similar than we're dissimilar. Um, and it all comes down to a lot of the same stuff. I totally agree with you. For the people listening as well, I want to highlight, Kelly and I are coming from like, you know, more extreme examples. Like you're talking about mental health, suicide, talking about wrestling mm-hmm. with my sexuality. But even like if you're struggling with like, you know, you cheated on your girlfriend or your wife or you're about to lose your job or you want to launch a business and you're afraid to talk about it, like, there's so many other things that, you know, might not seem as drastic, but are still important to talk about. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts on this. But I think just being vulnerable and talking about those things, and I think for men especially, we're living this time where a lot of men don't open up and express feelings. It's so important to find people you can relate to because not everyone always has really good friendships or family they can open up to. And I've always believed that communication is like the one that fundamentally separates all humans and creates so many problems in the world. And if we can overcome our communication barriers, we can, you know, we can get past through anything. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, again, one of the really cool things about the Internet um, is that it takes away some of that risk of allowing yourself to be seen because you can really explore, for example, like there's lots of communities of people who are really into Tony Robbins. And for some people, I have a lot of people who are like, you're in a cult. And I'm like, it's really, it's totally not a cult. <laughs> but I can see why you, I can intellectually see why you might think it is. Definitely not a cult. But there's people who, even bringing up his name, it ends the conversation. Um and I'm like, well, this is kind of the stuff I want to explore. And, like, it's really hard to work with it and, like, not talk to people about it. And then I just Google Tony Robbins and then I can find people to talk about it with. Um, and even, like, Meetup and, like, all of these things that are popping up. I think it's so funny because everybody's trying to play this game where, like, I have to act like I'm not lonely or I have to act like I don't want other people because then people will think that I'm not wantable. But everybody feels lonely sometimes, and everybody's afraid that other people don't want them. So it's this very weird dynamic that's, like, hard to get, but everybody loses from it. (laughs) Wise had Alexi Panos on the podcast, and she talks about how she wants to make self-development mainstream. 
because so many people have this like woo woo negative stigma about it where like you mentioned Tony Robbins and he's pretty mainstream, has mm-hmm. multiple books, but yeah, that's going to lose some people. And you talk about, you know, some other aspects of the industry and then people are gone. But the really interesting thing from my point of view is that you look at all the anxiety, the depression and all the mental illnesses that are, you know, I don't want to use the word spring up because maybe they've been around throughout history and we just didn't talk about them. But it seems like so many people are struggling personally with things and yet we're not willing to talk about them, right? And so that's ironic how this stuff is like woo-woo and out there, but really it's like the thing you need to help you transform through the shit you're going through. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, I mean, because we can understand... I think it also comes from a misunderstanding or differing opinions about how your brain and personality and all that works. Because, you know, people know that if you go to the gym and you work out seven days a week, your body's going to start looking different and your body's going to start feeling different. And I think that obviously there's lots of different approaches to this self-help, all the things that go into that, but a lot of them are like tools. And you do the tools every day and then you can literally change your brain. And you change how you think and you change how you feel. And it's the same thing. Like, these are tools. And if you don't, you know, people are like, oh, that's weird, whatever. But if you don't, and the same with your body. Like, if you don't consciously make an effort to train your mind, somebody else is going to make money training your mind. (laughs) Right? Like, you know, it's just you're in default. And it's being in default is really disempowering, at least you know, I live most of my life on default in panic mode and fear of rejection and being isolated. And I think that this self-help, there's a reason why it's this billion dollar industry it's because everybody wants it. And I heard someone say, oh, you know, if, it, if they sell so many books, then it must not work. I'm like nothing that you do for your health works that way. You don't say I did a push up last year. I'm good. You don't. it's a practice and there's so much to learn. And it's just, I don't, I think that it's fear because I think that there's vulnerability in saying I need help. Um, and they're saying, I don't know how to do it myself or I can't have my stuff together. Um, and I think that there's also this, like, what is, what's the word? It's like the cynicism is fear and to change from being openly cynical means I could be wrong. But if I always say it's going to be bad, and if I always feel it's going to be bad, and if I never trust anybody, then I won't be disappointed. Stepping into this idea that I'm going to trust what this person says, or I'm going to do something different, or I'm going to try to take actions, and the people around me might think it's weird, that's scary. Um, and so I think it goes it goes back to the vulnerability and the, the like feeling empowered. In, to make decisions because most people um, and I take this from my guy but you know you don't actively decide like the beliefs that I had about myself um, that I was ugly that I was weird whatever all of these things that they were just things that people said to me when I was growing up and like people weren't really saying them to me anymore but they were like that was my identity and for worse, because there you don't, there's nothing to be gained from feeling like that about yourself. But I never would have even thought that that wasn't just me. 
until I was challenged on why I believed and acted that way. And I think that most people, you know, after your formative years, whatever you learn then just becomes how you view the world. And you're not even taught to question whether or not those are accurate as, as you age, as you change, because you're always, you know, everybody's always changing. But if you have these old, outdated beliefs, then you're going to keep living out whatever someone told you you were. What's well, amazing how we get addicted to our stories, right? What happened to us early on, we carry around these experiences into our adulthood, even if they're not serving us, right? Like how we were bullied in high school or how we weren't cool enough. And that lack of confidence you carry around with you into your 20s, your 30s. And when you show up at your office, people can sense it on you. Like maybe they don't know the full story about it, but they're picking up that energy because you're just not comfortable in your own skin. You're not owning your own space and being who you want to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think Cheryl Strayed, and I think it's in Wild, um, she talks about, like, fear. I think it's like fear is largely born of a story that, that we tell ourselves. So I decided to tell myself another story. And it's like, that's that's what I did. And I think that that's like the fundamental shift in deciding that every day you're going to make a decision is because if you have this core belief that I'm not powerful, I'm damaged goods, like I'm broken, my brain's broken, my soul's broken, like I got all this baggage, no one's going to want to deal with it. I'm not going to want to go do stuff. Like if someone tells you that every day, oh, that's awful. But if you're like, yeah, you know, stuff happened. And I was able to survive. And I was able to cultivate things in myself that maybe would not be there had I not had those hard experiences. So no, I don't advise anybody to have those because they're awful. And, you know, we should try to eliminate that stuff as much as possible. But, you know, changing it from I'm a victim to I'm a survivor is, like, huge. And it's, like, that this, like, basic story, like, you know, the name of your book, right? Because my, my book would probably have had a very, like, sad, like, melodramatic title, like, three years ago. Um, versus now, it's like, uh, you know, like, you learn to laugh at the things that it's easier to laugh at, and then you acknowledge the things that happen, and you don't deny it, but it's like, okay, well, these, these things happened to me, I can't change them. They were hard, but I did it, and like, cool, so I'm just going to keep doing stuff. Um, and it, it's not... My story is not that I'm this broken person. My story is, you know, that I'm passionate and I'm intelligent and I want to help people. And this is really different. That's an empowering story. That's a story that's going to move you forward as opposed to make you small and weak. Exactly. Exactly. We've been talking a bit about mindset and a few minutes back you mentioned tools and tactics and I want to you know talk a bit more about this because yeah you said it yourself where it's like you know we train we watch what we eat when it comes to food and our health and like you know we get a school to educate ourselves but we don't really educate mindset in the set yeah. of like mental well-being and that's exactly what Tony Robbins does what are some tools that are the biggest tool that you found in your experience that really helped you shift forward? Um, one of the most jarring things <laughs> that I ever had to do uh, was that summer after my sophomore year of college, I was doing um, something called dialectic behavior therapy, um, DBT. Um, it's like there's a bunch of different components to it. But one of the... Uh, 
one of the exercises she had us, she had us, she had me do was she brought out a pack of um, post-its and a marker and said, write down all of the bad things you say about yourself. So I was like, okay, like, I'm all over that. Like, I've been practicing this for years. I've been in therapy forever. Like, I can spit out in an hour all of, the, all of my neuroses. Like, You're like, I'm going to need multiple sticky pads. Get me three more. Yeah, I got that. I got that. So I did it, and she's like, put them on your body. So one by one, I put each of them on myself. And it was so painful because you could, like, feel the weight as you saw yourself covered in all these awful words. It was like, oh, my God, like, I am so mean to myself. How could someone be expected to function? When, like, they're being weighed down by these words and these ideas. And then what she had me do was to write down good things and to pull them off um, and to put the good things on. Um, and there's a, there's a tool that, you know, um, thought stopping is one of the things you can do. But you have to really take the time to become aware of the thoughts because I think it's really hard. It's, it's hard to talk about if you haven't tried it before, because I think until you learn about cognition, um, your thoughts just seem like facts and like, there's no space. It's just like, this is my response. Like I don't even stop to think about the fact that I have thoughts all the time and I'm wrong all the time. I'm like, just because it's a thing that happened in my head doesn't mean it has value. Um, so I think that that process of just sitting back and saying, okay, what are the things that I say to myself all the time? Or what are, what are the habits of thinking that I have that are probably not helpful? What are the, what are the things you say to yourself that you would never say to another human being because you would never have friends again, right? Like the things that we say to ourselves that, that would be awful to say to anybody else. And why is it okay to say that to yourself? And then it's like, it's really like, one of the things, it's, it's totally not like, it is, it's like sexy in the fact that, you know, you could change your whole life, but it's not sexy in the fact that it's hard. It's like little things that you do all the time. Um, and I think that that was like, as my initiation into this whole world, that was a, just like getting on paper the stuff that I said to myself that I didn't, it wasn't conscious at that point. It was just a like automatic thought. I'm curious to know, because you just talked about how, you know, all this negative self-talk, the therapy that you went through to change it, does it ever go away for you? Like, and I'm going to speculate, like most people, like, you know, it's always there a little bit, but like, how do you live with that in a day-to-day basis? You you talk back. (laughs) Um, You say, shut the fuck up and just... Yeah, it's like, who are you? Like, what? Um, there's a lot of, like, cute things on Tumblr that are, like, imagine that the, like, mean automatic thoughts are, like, some, like, 12-year-old gamer, like, saying mean stuff to you over Xbox or whatever. Um, you know, you can give them different, uh, voices or, but it's, like, an, and I didn't realize that, that this is what we were doing at the time, but even when I was in treatment for my eating disorder, they would call it the, the Ed voice or the eating disorder voice. And it was like, you learn to separate the thoughts from yourself. Um, 
And I didn't realize that I was really like practicing mindfulness um, is like separating and just acknowledging the thoughts and being able to say, that's not me. Um, and we talked about that, like that in yoga, we talked about it a lot. It's like, you know, there's the part of you that's like constantly judging everything that's happening. And like, then there's the voice that's like, oh, I want this. I don't want this. It's like accept or reject. Um, and then you, it's just like this loop. But there's another, there's another person in there who's the one who's watching. And that's the real you. Like, you are not your thoughts. Because we have stupid thoughts. We're wrong all the time. We're, like, just weird thoughts. Just strange, intrusive thoughts um, that people have all the time. And, you know, why, why, when you have them and they're mean about yourself, are they okay to have? And, like, there's no use in challenging that, right? Like, if, you know, somebody cuts you off and you're like, I'm about to go out on the sky, and then you're like, oh, that's wrong, don't do that. You can do that to yourself, too. It's just a matter of really starting to focus, bringing the attention inward. What does self-love look for you? Because you've obviously gone through, you know, a lot of shit. What does your self-love practice look like? Because... You know, negativity doesn't go away. So how do you shift it? Um, do you, so do you mean like what do I do on a regular basis or what do I do in the moment or? More of your practice. Like what are your physical activities or even emotional activities? You know, how do you, you know, do you dedicate time weekly? Do you dedicate time daily? What does that practice look like for Kelly? Yeah. So I just finished my, uh, 200-hour yoga teacher training. Um, so I've been doing a lot of yoga. Um, but I think that part of our training was a daily meditation practice. Um, so that's something that I meditate. Um, and my thoughts don't disappear. <laughs> I think that that really, people are like, oh, well, you say I should meditate, but I can never have a blank mind ever. So no, which is like not. It's just like refocusing. Or it's noticing, listening. Um, but it's just like sitting and like, okay, my attention goes away. I acknowledge that my attention drifted away. It's not bad. It doesn't make me bad. But let me refocus back on my breathing. And that's it. It's like super simple. Um, I also practice a lot of yoga. I teach fitness classes. Um, so that's something that I do on a regular basis that I enjoy. I love reading. I love reading. Um, but most of them, I think <laughs> like 50 books next to my bed and maybe 58 are like psychology self-help books. Um, so I read a lot of that stuff because uh, I've always been fascinated by the human mind um, and the human spirit. Uh, I talk I'm very close with my family. Um, I'm, I have people in my life who I talk to and I also have really, really just listen, started to listen to my body and my, like what, like my intuition and what I want. So like, if there is, you know, something that's happening and somebody is freaking out or something's going on and like, I understand my limits. So if I'm like, I can't, I can't handle that conversation right now. I don't have to have that conversation right now. It doesn't make me a bad person. I am a human being and I have limited bandwidth. I can't do, I can, you can do anything, but you can't do everything, right? Like I can do things, but I can't do everything all the time. And that's okay. And like, I don't have 
have to do everything all the time. Um, so just like even that perspective, like, well, like last night, last night I was like, I'm really sad and angry. And I was like, okay, are you? No, you just haven't been sleeping. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just tired then. I'm grumpy. <laughs> like, okay, that's better. I'm like, I can just sleep. Like, that's fine. Um, so just like checking in and like saying, well, what is my body telling me? And is this valuable? And how am I interpreting it? And, you know, I, I learned the way that I used to get sucked into my emotional experiences and the stuff that's happening to me, because I still deal with, I totally still deal with depression. Um, I deal with, you know, changes in mood where I had a few weeks where I was sleeping like two hours a night. Um, so I totally, you know, I, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. It's not, it's, it's not part of my identity in, in the way that it used to be. But I, I have this awareness now that like, okay, I know who to call when things get bad. Um, I know who to call when things are okay. I, you know, like I, I, I know the people who I should talk to. I have doctors, I have family members and friends. And I don't get, like, I have the knowledge now that I've been depressed before and I've experienced, like, these things before and they went away. Like, everything that I thought, every time I thought I couldn't live through something, I was wrong, obviously. Like, I was batting a thousand for my bad days. So, I, it'll go away. And, you know, it's a, this too shall pass. And I think that, that that perspective and, like, not getting as engaged in my, you know, misery or whatever I'm experiencing um, has added a lot of value. I think a lot of people are afraid that I've had a lot of people say, well, I don't want to meditate because it will make me boring <laughs> or it will make me like this medium person. And like, I will have no personality left. And it's totally not, not what happened. I don't think that's what happens for, for many people. Um, it's just, I know where, when I'm, you know, if I'm going to sit here and think about this thing that makes me unhappy, this is, I am making a choice right now. And I'm aware that I'm deliberately choosing to sit here and think about something that makes me feel bad when I know I could be doing something else. And there's some days where I'm like, yep, I, I, I'm going to put on some drink and I'm going to feel bad. I'm like, that's fine. But I know that I'm making the choice now. You're absolutely correct. My coach, you know, he always talks about it. He's like, you need people to lean on. There's days when I'm like, should I put out this podcast? How are people going to respond to it? You know, how much traction is it going to get? And he's like, you need to have people in those moments. Like, when you're down on yourself, he's like, you can't afford to be down. There's people that depend on you. He's like, you need to be on your game. And he's like, you got to call people up. And you should have support networks for, like, money, emotions, sexuality, Whatever it is, right, you need to have people you can turn to. And I think that's such an integral thing that really create that support network around you because we're not always going to have good days. And sometimes you just got to be gentle on yourself. Right. And I think that that's really amazing and brave and awesome to say out loud because a lot of times when we want to succeed or we want to do something, we want people to think of us as a certain way. And we think that people ex expect us to not have bad days or expect us to not have struggles. And literally everybody ever, forever, always in the past and will have struggles. And they will have things that they struggle with. And I think that having people you admire or having people you look to say, yeah, this is something that's been hard for me. And this is something that's hard for me right now. It's like, oh, okay, I can, I can be like, I can have my stuff too. Like, that's really reassuring that. I don't have to put up a wall or I don't have to be perfect 
because the people who I look up to can acknowledge that they're not perfect either. Well, it's really interesting. When I released my podcast about my sexuality, my parents were like, we don't want you forming a business around your weaknesses. And that's just an interesting mindset because it's like my dad struggles with anxiety and he runs a business. It's like a landscaping company and he does pretty well for himself, but he's so afraid to admit his weaknesses. And like when business is not going as well, they don't have any jobs. He just like beats himself up. And like, because he comes from this older mindset of just like, I'm a man, I should never be weak. Like this mental illness is just eating at him. And I try to like help him reframe it and work through it, but you can't help everyone, right? It's like I always say, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make the horse drink the water. And so if he's not in a place of openness and wanting to help, it's just so hard. But it's totally the fact that, you know, we all have weaknesses and moments where we doubt ourselves. And I'm not going to sit here and say that everything's perfect in my life either, because then I wouldn't be honest to my audience. And so it's not about being flawless. It's just about showing up every day and doing your best and moving forward with that. Exactly, yeah. And because there is no life without problems. (laughs) Like, that is part of the deal. I don't know why it's the deal. It just is. And if you are of the mindset that if you do enough of something, you won't have problems anymore, you will always be disappointed. Because, you know, what you find out when you set goals for yourself is you get the goal, and it's like, yeah. Like, even... Like, you know, big things that I've done. I'm like, wow, this is fun. I'm enjoying it right now. And it's going to be over. And it's going to be okay. It's going to be over, you know. And, like, then I'll have something else that I'm worried about. And if you're so tied to specific things happening, the hedonistic treadmill, right, is like, I'll be happy when I get this. And then I get it. And I'm like, yeah, but, like, I'll really be happy when I get this one. Okay, well, okay, that lasted for, like, a couple of days. All right, well, like, this is the thing. And, like, that, you'll do that for the rest of your life. If you are expecting that you're going to get to some place where it's not going to be hard anymore, right? The only people who don't have problems are in cemeteries. Like, it's part of the game for whatever reason. I grew up playing tennis, and I idolized Andre Agassi. Like, he was my guy when I was playing when I was younger. I read his book, Open, which is his own biography. And it was interesting. One thing that I remember from that book, when he got to number one in the world, he was doing an interview with one of the reporters. And the reporter's like, how does it feel to be number one in the world? And he told him, like, oh, it's phenomenal. It feels incredible. But deep down, he felt nothing. And he felt like shit. And that's when he went on shortly after, like, his crystal meth bend and just completely fell off the tennis radar because, you know, he had worked his entire life and his dad had pushed him to become number one in the world. And then he got there. And it's such an amazing accomplishment. Like, you would think it'd be, like, the most fulfilling thing ever. And there he was feeling complete emptiness. Yeah. And I think that's pretty common, a lot more common than people admit, um, is that when you are so set on this one thing, because also, you know, it's not that you shouldn't have goals, but then sometimes it doesn't happen either. And, like, that's devastating. And how do you recover when everything that you tie your value to doesn't happen? So I think that it's, it goes back to the mindset and the, like, you know, promoting this self-help, this, uh, and I don't even know if maybe self-help isn't the personal development, um, is about learning that, like, if on a bad day, I'm good, I'm okay, on a good day, I'm okay, like, and, and having it, 
because things will always change and you can't predict how people are going to act and you can't predict the stock market and you can't predict the political climate and you can't predict anything, but you have inside of you the ability to make decisions. And I think that's, that's like what it all boils down to is just telling people, you know, you have a choice. Um, right now. And it's not that other things don't, clearly, it's not that other things don't impact it. And I don't think that, you know, oh, everybody should just be able to figure their stuff out and it doesn't matter what your experiences are because life is hard and there's different challenges in different people's lives and some, you know, pe different people have different resources. But, but it is all about giving people these tools to say, yes, but in you, like, you do have power. I want to ask, this podcast is called Your Next Chapter. What's next for Kelly? Oh, man. Um, well, <laughs> uh, my dream um, is, to, is to actually create the space for spaces um, for the people who I feel like are my people. Um, so I really would love to work on creating some sort of like drop-in center wellness hub where people who are struggling or people who don't feel like they belong anywhere or people who, you know, maybe want to change their lives and the people around them laugh at them and the people around them, you know, are like, oh, you'll never do it. It's a place for people who need somewhere to be and who want to grow and who want to learn and who want to be supported to go when they need to go. Because I think that for regardless of what diagnosis or what, whatever happens to you, I think everyone stands to benefit from something like that. Um, because you put people in a position where there's like that cushion for vulnerability because, you know, you, you lower the stakes a little bit because everybody's admitting when they show up that they're like, I want support. What stops you from opening the center? Um, well, I think I'm probably going to need a little, a little bit more advanced education. Um, I just graduated, I just got my bachelor's degree last year. Um, but I'm, I'm really, you know, I talk to people about this idea a lot. So that's, that's my, my big dream that I'm working on right now. But do you feel like you're on the path? Like you're obtaining the resources to be able one day to execute on the idea? Definitely. I mean, I, when I was six, my, um, uh, so <laughs> the, when I was in the um, psych ward, I said I had my first experience of not having rights anymore um, because I was told that I, if I signed myself in, I could leave after 72 hours. And they were like, no, you can't leave. <laughs> um, and it was at that time where I decided, I said, I'm going to go work in policy. Um, so that was my goal from there. Um, so that's what I'm doing for now. Um, because there's a lot, clearly a lot of work to be done. Um, but I think after this, what I'm starting to build towards now would be uh, creating a place for people. For someone battling with a form of mental illness, what advice do you have for them? Oh, man. This one's tough because I think that it's, it's different for everybody. Everybody has different experiences. Um, and I don't think that they're... It might be nice to say that there's one answer, but there's definitely not one answer. I don't know anybody who honest, who will tell you honestly that there's one answer. Um, but I think that reaching out for support in whatever way that looks like is, is the first step. 
Um, and then knowing that it's possible to feel like you don't have to feel the way you feel right now forever. And there's resources out there for you. Even if you might not have them right now, they exist. There's people out there who care about you and who dedicate their lives to, to helping, you know, to want to be available to help you. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot of people who, who maybe don't have the same experience, maybe don't feel the exact same way you feel right now, but there's a lot of people who have been in a similar place. And there's a lot of people who are in a similar place and you're not alone. You've read a lot of books on psychology, how the brain operates. What's the one biggest book that had the most major impact on you? The most major book. That's a good question. Hmm. I'll say not. I'll say something besides Tony Robbins. <laughs> um, there's a book called Carry On Warrior by a woman named Glennon Doyle Melton. Um, she's spoke at a conference at my work conference last year and I actually have a tattoo from her or a quote from her book tattooed on my body uh, and it says the heart that breaks open can contain the whole universe her book really um, made me more comfortable of the fact that I'm just a sensitive person and like I'm a feels person and like it's okay like there's feels people Everybody has feels, but like some people are more, you know, I, I just have big feelings and like it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me. And like there's a lot of value and there's a lot of value that I can bring to the table because of my quote unquote weakness. Um, so her, for people who are, who feel very sensitive, um, I think that the, it's called Carry On Warrior. Um, and I think that it's just, I've given it to, I think, four or five people. Um, really awesome book. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the, do you have any social media or what's the way to uh, track you down? Yeah, um, social media, my, in, I think Instagram's probably the best. That's how we connected. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, I guess, what is it? Handle? I'm not good at I can, um, um, I can put your handle on the show notes unless you remember it off the top of your head. Yeah, it's it's Kelly A as in Anne, B as in Bernadette Davis. Um and that's probably the best, quickest way to get a hold of me. <laughs> I loved your profile and that's how we first connected. So yeah, I do recommend anyone that's listening, go check it out, send Kelly a message and she got back to me, so I'm gonna assume she's gonna get back to you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Kelly, so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my podcast with Kelly Davis. I hope her story resonated with you and there are bits and pieces that you can take with you on your journey. There is one thing that I want to reiterate, 
And that's the point that Kelly made how she felt so alone on her journey, especially early on in grade school and in high school where her emotions felt too big for her body and she didn't know how to articulate them or how to express them. And that really left her in isolation. And as a result of that, I would say from my point of view, making some of the choice that she did being in toxic relationships, abusing substances, trying to take her life a few times, all as a result of not being able to express how she was able to feel and connect with other people. And as she said at the end, one of the best things you can do for mental illness is when you are in that situation, you feel alone and isolated, is really reach out to somebody else and connect with people. And they may not be in the exact same situation as you, but even if they're in a similar boat, they'll be able to identify. And that feeling of being a weirdo and isolated and alone will be shattered and it'll give you a sense of hope. And she said she talked about the power of the internet and how there's so many groups out there where we can really connect to. And so if you're in that situation, I would highly recommend you considering reaching out to someone, even if it's more privately through the internet. And it's interesting because I had a guest on here a few episodes ago, Katie Fenn, founder of The Love Warrior, and she talked about the same thing, how the universe is there to support you, to take care of you, and there are people dedicated to being there for you. And so it's really about reaching out and understanding that the world's not out to get you, but rather to support you and love you and make you the best human being possible. And so I'm going to leave you with that. I do want to remind you that I have a short podcast coming up with Preston Smiles tomorrow. It's a short little tidbit talking about what I learned from him. And it's going to be talking about celebrating your emotions rather than punishing them, which is kind of poetic and unplanned how it falls in sync with this podcast. And so if you want that, subscribe to my podcast and it'll be out tomorrow or jump on my email list at philipserpinski.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And if this podcast with Kelly Davis resonated with you, I ask that you share it with one other person who may need it. Thank you for being a guest and I look forward to having you on the show next time.